I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Advancements in the cloud computing space have democratized how software developers manage their product infrastructure. With this, they can focus more on the core components of their product instead. Risha Mars, software engineer at Boyant, and Eliza Wiseman, systems software engineer at Boyant, explained various components that improve how an infrastructure is developed and maintained. We discussed several topics like service proxy, service mesh, and the programming languages Rust and Go. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank Blind for being a sponsor. Navigating the workplace can be a challenge. Blind is an anonymous app for tech workers where they can discuss and talk about compensation, career development, workplace harassment, and more. Go to teamblind.com to download the app and connect with other employees. That's teamblind.com. Thank you. Risha Mars and Eliza Wiseman are joining us today. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be on. Thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about several topics like cloud computing, programming languages, but particularly, we're going to start by focusing on service proxy and service mesh. To begin, I want to understand what is service proxy? So essentially, a service proxy is a proxy that sits in front of a microservice in a microservices architecture, and requests to and from the service are routed through the proxy. Typically, the proxies add many different types of features or capabilities, such as security, load balancing, and observability. What makes this pattern an adequate solution for things that you mentioned, like adding security and these kind of layers? Well, one reason is that before the service proxies started to see widespread use, a lot of the time this functionality was implemented in a library that you might use in the application itself. One example of this is Finagle, which was released by Twitter. Another is Netflix's Hystrix. And the drawback of these libraries is, well, the primary one is that they are typically libraries in a particular programming language, so that restricts when they can be used. For example, Finagle is written in Scala, and it can only be used easily by Scala applications. So this is a problem if you have a polyglot environment. And if you have a polyglot environment where services are written in various programming languages, you might use different libraries that provide these features, but those implementations might be different, so the behavior is inconsistent. Also, it requires the developers of those services to think about these problems instead of being able to treat them as part of the platform. And there's potentially room for inconsistency when these libraries are configured or used differently in different services. The service proxy makes all of this functionality more consistent across the entire application, and it allows the developers of services to focus primarily on the service's business logic. Can you give one example of functionality? I know you talked about security and you mentioned other ones, but what would be a concrete example of functionality that is added using the service proxy? 
So there's things like retries. So for example, in Linkerd One, if you have a service-to-service call that's that uses Linkerd One, and for some reason your API call fails with a specified type of failure, like a 500 for HTTP, then the proxy will automatically retry the request, and you don't need to worry about implementing retries on your own. When I was researching for this interview. I read that once you have a service proxy, you can have it in all your services if you need so. When this happens, you can create what it's called a service mesh. Can you explain what service mesh is? Yeah. So you can have a proxy in front of a singular service, or you can have it in front of like many services. And the advantage of having the proxy in front of many services would be that you can have like an end-to-end picture and control over the system really easily. So one of the things that you can do, there's a proxy in front of everything, in front of all your services, is that you can have a higher level control over the requests between those services. So for example, there's things like dynamic request routing. So for example, if each of the proxies are responsible for routing the requests to other proxies, then you have a really easy way to direct traffic throughout the system where instead of manually configuring every service to maybe use a staging service instead of production, you can really easily with like one header override in Linkerd One, for example, just send all requests for a particular service to another service or to a staging version of that same service. So it's very convenient to do that. Yeah, and besides uh, request routing, there are a lot of other features that become possible when you have control over both ends of a network connection. For example, a feature that we have in Linkerd Two is we do upgrades from HTTP one to HTTP two. The HTTP two protocol is multiplexed across one TCP connection and allows many requests to be sent on that connection concurrently, and it's much more efficient. So since we control both ends of the communication channel, the source proxy where the request is sent can upgrade from an HTTP one request to an HTTP two request on an existing channel. And then it can be downgraded at the receiving end before it's sent to the receiving service that expects a simple HTTP one request. You can do similar things with encryption where the source proxy encrypts the connection and the receiving proxy decrypts the connection. And this allows applications to make plain text unsecured requests, but still benefit from encrypted on the communications on the wire because the proxy handles both encrypting and terminating TLS. I see. Why would we want to do, for example, what you just said, encryption and decryption in the proxy layer versus just doing that at the service itself? What is the advantage of having that abstraction in the service proxy? Well, I would say primarily it's a concern that's separated from the business logic of the application. So it's more of a networking or platform concern, and it's good for the developers who are writing the business logic to not have to worry about these things. It makes the application code simpler. Moving into the proxy layer also allows these features to be implemented more consistently. Those are some of the main advantages. Also, it allows if the proxy is, for example, performing encryption in a particular way, and it's terminating TLS in the same way, then the services that are being communicated to and from don't have to be directly responsible for ensuring that their implementation of TLS is compatible. 
This also allows you to take a service that maybe you didn't necessarily write or that's legacy code, and you can still benefit from these features without having to change that code base. For example, if you have a binary that is proprietary, you didn't write it and you can't modify that binary, you could run that binary as a service regardless and still, be and even if that binary runs a server that only accepts plain text HTTP one requests, you can still benefit from these features in the communications channel. And the proxy service is still provided with the type of requests that it expects. So we talked about this idea of having the service proxy and then the ability of running this in many services, which leads to having a service mesh. Is the mesh essentially a layer to manage the multiple service proxies or what exactly is the service mesh? Yeah, so I would say that a lot of service meshes are composed of two things, and one is called commonly a control plane, and the other is called a data plane. And the data plane is really the network of proxies that talk to each other, and the control plane is like an even higher layer of management on top of that that can consolidate the data from the proxies and also use configuration to manage what the proxies do. So yeah, all the proxies comprise part of the data plane, and you can definitely have a service mesh that's only the data plane, so only the proxies, but the second part of the service mesh, which is the control plane, is where you can really take advantage of what the proxies provide and have another layer. And also the control planes are where you tend to see the metrics being exported, so you can really have a good picture of the traffic going through your system and the success rates and the latencies and all of the information collected by the data plane. Yeah, I would add that in any service mesh or really in any network, there's always some form of control plane, even if it's not a component of the system. For example, if your proxies are all configured independently by a configuration file, then whatever tools you use to update and modify those configuration files form a sort of ad hoc control plane. But many modern service mesh technologies have a control plane that it's that is implemented as a separate component of the system rather than just manually by updating a set of config files or changing the flags that are passed to a proxy process or, you know, more less automated forms of control. I see. And both of you work at Boyan and Boyan has this product called Linkert, which is the open source network proxy that is designed to be deployed as a service mesh. Can you talk about the interactions at Linkert between the control plane in the data plane. Yeah, sure. So in our most recent product, which is Linkerd 2, we have many lightweight service proxies that are written in Rust. And what the proxies do is they export metrics. So the proxies see all the traffic that are going between services and they can observe many things such as latencies and all of the proxies expose a metrics endpoint. And what we do is we have an instance of Prometheus that scrapes all of the proxies for data. And then our control plane queries Prometheus for the data that we want. And we have a dashboard and we have a CLI component that allows you to query the control plane for 
numerous stats about the system. And so when you query the control plane, what the control plane does is it talks to Prometheus, it formulates the right queries for you, and then it just retrieves the data that was initially exported by the proxies. So I was going to add that the other way that the proxy interacts with the data plane is through service discovery. This is the main way that routing and policy are communicated to the proxies. When a proxy receives a request, when it determines the destination for that request, as in, in this case, typically that's represented as an HTTP authority, it will query the control plane to say, give me a list of all of the endpoints for this request. And the control plane will provide it with service discovery. And as the services available change, it will update those service discovery records. The control plane also can provide metadata to the proxy. And this is used for both the observability features that Risha discussed. It might annotations describing a particular endpoint so that the metrics for the communications with that endpoint can be enriched with more data about the endpoint's identity. But it also can determine things such as, for example, what protocols are available on this endpoint? What's the identity of this endpoint for TLS? So that when I send encrypted traffic to that endpoint, I know what the common name of the endpoint is so that uh, I can verify its certificates. Oh, yeah. Uh, I also wanted to add that we have a feature called TAP in the control plane, which allows you to have a live view of requests as the proxy sees them. So that is another way that the control plane interacts with the data plane in Linkerd. I see. You mentioned, Eliza, this notion of service discovery. Can you explain in a bit more detail a scenario when this is useful, the service discovery portion? Sure. So service discovery is important, especially in managed or scheduled environments like Kubernetes. In Kubernetes, um, a pod that represents a process or set of processes running in Docker containers that implement a particular service is relatively ephemeral. As more pods are created um, or destroyed, such as, for example, if you want to perform a rolling update of a particular pod, you might instruct uh, Kubernetes to update that service to a different Docker image. And it'll do this by performing a rolling update across the pods that comprise that service. So it will shut down the pods running the older version of the image and start new pods running a new version of the image. Similarly, if there are issues like node failures, some of the pods that comprise a service might go down and Kubernetes might then start new pods to ensure that whatever the requested scale of that service is maintained. Uh, or if you scale up a service because you want to handle more traffic or scale down a service because you realize that fewer instances are necessary, the pods that comprise that service might change. So service discovery is a way of dynamically updating the routing information that the proxy has as the available endpoints that comprise a given service are modified. And it also is how, as I said earlier, metadata is provided to the proxy. So as an example, suppose I wanted to carry out a rolling update. I have a service with, let's say, three pods and they're running an older version of the Docker image that is run by those containers, and I decide I want to update it to a new version. When I do that, the Kubernetes master, it starts by shutting down one pod and then bringing up a new pod of the new version, and it knows that those are both still part of the same logical service. So if I have a proxy that is in front of some other service that's communicating to the service that's in the middle of a rolling update, the control plane will notify that proxy of changes in service discovery, in this case as 
as old pods that comprise the service are deleted, it'll be notified these IP addresses are no longer valid. And as new pods are created, it will be notified this new IP address is now also part of that service. So when you want to send traffic to that service, such as when the service that the proxy is in front of issues a request to it, uh, the proxy will use that dynamically changing service discovery information to determine what the actual address to which that request should be routed is. I see. So if I understand this correctly, it's particularly useful when you are upgrading a service or downgrading a service, right? I would say it's particularly useful in any environment where the endpoints that comprise a service might change dynamically or might change frequently. So this is different from, you know, a very old-fashioned model of what a service might look like is, you know, we have one physical piece of hardware that is running our mail server and that's providing the mail service and it has a static IP address because the router is configured in hardware to always assign this piece of hardware this IP address. In a cloud-native environment, that's not really the case. Workloads and containers are extremely ephemeral. The running containers are created and destroyed frequently for a variety of reasons, including responding to hardware failures or responding to increasing demand or reduced demand or doing upgrades. So there might be other reasons besides an operator manually creating or destroying instances of a service that might also correspond to service discovery changes. For example, a service might start failing a health check and so it might be shut down or just removed from that service. And what you're saying is that prior to living in this cloud-native environment, did these kind of changes involve reconfiguring hardware? They might, or reconfiguring a fixed set of IP addresses and software. Service discovery, I would say, is different from that in that it refers to uh, enumerating a dynamically changing set of endpoints that comprise a particular service. It gives an application the ability to dynamically discover what the endpoints in a service are rather than hard-coding certain addresses or listing them statically in a configuration or so on. Both of you have been working for a while in this cloud-native environment. Some of the things that I see here are new programming languages popping up, or we're still using others that have been around for a while. Risha, I saw that these days you're programming in Go, which is a relatively young programming language created by Google, released at around 2009. Can you explain what this language is particularly useful for? Yeah, sure. So I think that Go is really good for writing, well, good at a lot of things. One of those things is writing lightweight web servers. And we do a lot of that. It has really useful libraries. So it allowed us to write a pretty nice CLI, which, you know, we can add flags, we can customize it however we want. We use this library called Cobra. And I really like it. I think it also has a lot of appeal to the wider development community because everyone feels like it makes them pretty productive. And I think the community is really excited about contributing to projects in Go. And that is good because I think it means we can collaborate with more people in working on this project. I think another nice thing is that Kubernetes is also like KubeCuddle and all the Kubernetes tools are written in Go, and then we can use their... We, our code depends a lot on various libraries, and we can 
often. It's a lot easier for us to just integrate with that because we're also using Go and we use their client Go that they export, which provides a lot of useful functionality for interacting with Kubernetes clusters. You mentioned it's particularly useful for lightweight web services. What constitutes a service being lightweight? Can you talk about some of the functionality it has? Yeah, for sure. So I think that the concept of lightweight is, for me, is that you don't require a lot of code to just get a simple web server running. It's very easy. And for one, there's not a lot of code. And also, it's a pretty good web server. Like, there's it can accept a lot of requests, or there are other implementations that will. And those are also very easy to use. Um, don't require a lot of memory. Yeah, I think that's why I consider those lightweight. And the last thing I wanted to expand on is you mentioned it's also particularly useful for writing CLI, which is command line interface. Why is this important in the context of developing cloud native applications and services and things like that? Yeah, for sure. So I think that people, it's really common to use the command line to interact with your clusters and You would typically use a command line when you're changing configs or updating your services. And it's good to have another native tool there that will allow you to immediately like check the health of your services or just to interact with the control plane from the same place that you're doing everything else. There is definitely the web dashboard that also provides the same information, but with graphs and different types of tables. But The command line is a really good and powerful and concise way of just getting all of the data out of the control plane right there where you already are. Yeah, I'd add just that the primary end user of this type of software are typically either developers or operations engineers. And those demographics tend to always demand a command line interface for any software that they use. And it composes well with other tools. Like, for example, one method of installing Linkerd into your cluster is to run the Linkerd install command, which outputs a YAML file and pipe that output directly into kubectl, you know, to apply that configuration to the Kubernetes cluster. So these command line interfaces uh, compose really well with each other. So they're basically streamlining the process and making it faster to make changes and have scripts in place, right? Yeah, definitely. Eliza, I saw that these days a programming language that you're using is Rust, which I saw is a systems programming language. Can you explain in more detail what this language can be used for? Yeah, so Rust is also a relatively new language. Um, it came out of Mozilla, and Rust is really useful for writing high-performance system software. It's useful for this for a number of reasons. It you know it compiles to a static binary using LLVM, so it can produce pretty optimized executables. But the primary reason is because Rust has safe memory management without garbage collection. So typically, there are two ways that a program might approach its use of memory. Either it manually allocates and deallocates memory the way that you do in C++ or C, where you have to add explicit calls to malloc or free when you want to 
allocate additional memory or release some allocated memory. Or you might use a garbage collector, which is a component of the runtime that runs your program. And the garbage collector is responsible for basically enumerating all of the allocations that the program has made, determining whether or not they're being used, and then when they're not being used, freeing them. Uh, and garbage collection is great. It lets us write safe software. We can avoid a lot of different types of errors, like the use of memory that has been deallocated, which at the best will cause your program to hit a segmentation fault. At the worst, it could be a serious security error. Or memory leaks where the program allocates more and more memory and that impacts its performance and may cause the operating system to kill it. But the problem with using these garbage collectors is that they can have some significant performance implications, especially when you are in an object-oriented language like Java. The garbage collector has to do a fairly complicated amount of work at runtime to determine what objects have been allocated, or to determine what objects that have been allocated are no longer in use, they're garbage, and they can be deallocated. And that can have a big performance implication because this usually runs in what's called a GC pause, which is where one thread or possibly all the threads in a program have to stop executing to give the garbage collector some time to go through all of the memory and check what is reachable, what's still in use. And that can be a significant performance impact. So Rust, on the other hand, has the advantage of it does all of this memory management automatically, much like a garbage collected language like Java. So you don't have these various classes of dangling pointer errors and memory leaks that are extremely common in software that you write in languages like C. But it also, it does the memory management at compile time rather than at runtime. So we don't have the overhead of a garbage collector. We don't have to stop the world to enumerate all of the memory and test what's still reachable. And that's a significant advantage when you're writing software that's extremely performance critical. In the data plane of a service mesh, you're routing all of the network traffic through those proxies. And because you're routing all of your network traffic through those proxies, any performance issues in the data plane can have a huge impact on your application. So it's really, really important that these proxies be as fast as possible and add minimal latency overhead. So when those proxies are written in a garbage collected language, a GC pause can have a significant impact on, especially on tail latencies, which are like the 99th percentile or 99.9 .9 percentile latencies. These are like the worst case latencies. If, for example, if a request occurs during a garbage collection pause, the GC pause might stop the entire process for 10 milliseconds. And if you happen to be the unlucky request that's sent during that pause, that request might have an extra 10 milliseconds of latency, and this can be a significant problem. Rust also allows us to make very, very small executables that don't use a lot of memory, and also are relatively small on disk so that the images are fast to download. And there's a focus on writing um, correct applications or co correct software in Rust on avoiding runtime errors and on safety, both in terms of memory safety specifically, so avoiding class of like dangling pointer bugs, on security and on writing applications that are very reliable. And the language has a lot of features to support that goal as well. So you mentioned this doesn't really have a garbage collector, but it's also not exactly the way we manage memory in C++. Is this in the middle of these two? Well, it's sort of. Uh, I would say it's a, a third approach that has 
many of the advantages of both of the other approaches and few of their disadvantages. So I mean, this is maybe a slightly reductive view, but if you look at it, you have the C and C++ family of languages, which have the advantage of you don't have to do runtime garbage collection, but the disadvantage of it's very easy to, you know, as they say, it's very easy to shoot yourself in the foot and see. There are whole categories of errors that can only occur in this kind of language. On the other hand, you have your garbage collected languages, and they have the significant advantage of you don't have these errors. You can't really easily write dangling pointer bugs in a garbage collected language, but the disadvantage is the performance impact of the garbage collector. So I would say, um, the Rust's approach is sort of a third option, and the difference is that it is still performing memory management automatically, so the programmer doesn't have to think about it, but it's doing this at compile time. It's doing it statically. So it's in Rust, really, the memory management is encoded in part of the type system. So it's similar to how when you have errors, you can, like when you have type errors, in some languages that are statically typed, like C, Java, Rust, you are essentially checking for these type errors at compile time when you're compiling a program. The compiler does type checking. It statically knows, well, this is the type of the value that's returned from this function. This is the type that can be passed into this function, and it does this type checking. And it'll fail your compilation if you have written code that would result in a type error when it's executed. On the other hand, you have languages like Python where there's less of this type checking that happens at compile time because these are interpreted languages. And the type checking happens at runtime, so you might write your program and then you might run it, and then some condition might happen that causes an invalid type to be passed to a certain function, and this causes your program to crash. So Rust does the memory management statically as well. So the compiler can infer when a particular memory allocation is used and when it might be freed, and so it inserts calls to allocate and deallocate that memory when the allocations are created and deallocate them when they are no longer being used. And similarly to how a garbage collector would do it, but it's reasoning about it statically the way a statically typed language reasons about type statically. I hope that was a sufficient explanation. Yes, that was a very good explanation. And what I'm getting from both of you talking to this is you are working in this cloud computing space and there are many different components in this whole architecture and this is why it's important to understand in a bit more detail what programming languages are out there, the advantages, how they implement certain things like memory management. And what I got from Risha is Go is pretty good out of the box, very lightweight. You get a lot of things beforehand and pretty handy for creating CLIs and Rust for more performant portions of the system. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say that's definitely correct. Something about when you're in this particular space and you're writing software that's infrastructure on top of which other people will build their software, things like performance and correctness become much more important because when you're writing an application, if you have some performance issues in the application, that means that the application is slightly slower. If you have some hidden bugs, that means the application crashes. When you're writing software infrastructure and you have some performance issues in the infrastructure software, that means that the same, like whatever performance problems you have or whatever overheads you introduce are also introduced on the applications that run on top of your infrastructure software. So everyone who builds on top of your platform is going to have these problems. If you have correctness issues, 
then everyone who builds on top of your platform also has those correctness issues. So it's very important to focus on performance and correctness, especially in the data path, we're actually transporting the requests of the user's application that's running on top of this infrastructure layer. I see. The last question that I want to ask both of you is, what are some of the reasons why working in this cloud space is interesting and challenging? Oh, yeah. I think it's super interesting because if you're building infrastructure software, then you're building software that a whole lot of other software is built on. And that feels very important because the better you can make that, the better you can make both the software and also the lives of other developers better. So that's pretty exciting. I think that people really like our tools because they can see how valuable it is to have this kind of management and service that all of the things that we take care of for your services out of the box. And that's pretty cool. So I think that's another reason why it's very satisfying. I think it's interesting because the space changes all the time. The space wasn't really a big deal in the near past. And it has really exploded because people are seeing how important it is. And that's pretty cool. You can see a bunch of tools pop up. And it's just very interesting to follow along as everyone kind of realizes how interesting and fun this kind of problem can be. Yeah, so I, first of all, I would definitely agree wholeheartedly with just about everything Risha just said. Always been especially interested in system software and software that is at a lower level rather than writing application software. Uh, when I was in college, I was very interested in operating systems, and now I'm really excited to be writing infrastructure. And I think the other nice thing about making developer tools in infrastructure is that developers are somewhat better end users than non-developer end users, right? A lot of the time when your customers or other engineers, they have some understanding of the experience of writing software. So they're good at providing you with detailed and descriptive bug reports because they understand the value of that. Or they are good at diagnosing some problems on their own. And when they say, well, I'm having these problems, they present you with their, you know, their diagnosis or investigation of the problem. Um, that makes it really easy to fix. Also, they have, I think, a greater um, appreciation and gratitude for software than other end users because they're themselves in the business making software. So that always feels good as well. And it's nice to know that we have the ability to benefit a lot of people because we're benefiting both the other engineers who use our software and all of the users of their applications because we're helping to make their applications faster and more reliable and more secure. Exactly. And the other, just to add on what you just mentioned, the other benefit I see here is allowing people to focus on the core product that they're building and not try to reinvent the wheel in terms of infrastructure and things like that if it's not really their main product, right? Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, a big part of Buoyant's mission is to make it easier for anyone to create innovative and secure software because they don't have to worry as much about the concerns of the networking layer. And so we are, in a sense, helping to lower the barriers to entry for creating large distributed networked applications. Well, Risha and Eliza, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show on such a short notice. It's been great talking with you. Yeah, it's been great talking with you. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, it, I had a great time. Thank you so much. Thanks to Blind for being a new sponsor of the show. Go to teamblind.com. That's teamblind.com to download the app and connect with other employees from your company. Check it out. Check it out.